LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network. G'day, I'm Scott Sanders. Welcome to The One Thing, a podcast designed to give you one solid practical tip for gospel center ministry every week. Now, The One Thing is brought to you with thanks to Reach Australia. We want to see thousands of healthy, evangelistic, multiplying churches. So we want to see health, we want to see growth, uh, we want to see new churches started, and we want to see the established church uh, reaching out with the great news of Jesus. Now, uh, I've got a, uh, a second, third-time guest, I think it is, Steve McAlpine, joining us today. So, Steve, welcome to The One Thing. Good to be back again. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. <laughs> again. Now we are recording this. You are in beautiful, hot WA, and I'm in cold, cold Sydney. Wow. It is hot today, it's, 37. It's, yeah, it's meant to be summer, but it's not summer in Sydney, and it's definitely summer in, in WA. Uh, so if there's a little bit of an audio you know, issue today, if you hear something like that, it's partly because uh, we are on different sides of the country. But for now, you've pressed play on another episode of The One Thing, Analyzing Australian Culture. Now, Steve, I must have been one of the few people who hadn't you know, fully read your book. It's, uh, it's, an, you know, it's a bestseller, but uh, I've had it on my bookshelf. And really, I just needed to have this conversation to kind of churn my way through it. Great. Look, you and my wife. Uh, so, <laughs> no, she's heard it all at dinner tables for the last. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm assuming Jill. I'm, I'm assuming Jill's talked about it, just like I have with you. Had loads of conversations with you um, about the book. But can you just give us a sort of basic thesis of being the bad guys? Yeah, basically, it's the uh, the discombobulation that people felt with the shift where Christianity was seen as perhaps neutral in the culture and something to be ignored to something that was actually hostile to our idea of where we wanted to head as a as a culture, and that Christian f- uh, beliefs on certain things, exclusivity of Jesus, uh, issues around sexuality in particular, were no longer seen as things that people could believe in a neutral sense and get on with their own lives, but were actually problematic. And how we respond to those things. Is it uh, fear? Do we cave in? Do we get hostile? And really, how does the church and how do we equip people, uh, especially pastoral people, how do they equip people from Monday to Friday in Babylon, as I would put it? Which, uh, which, which just comes through in the book. What I, what I love is you can see uh, you know, every chapter, you've actually, you've actually got a pastor's heart. So even though you're a writer, you're a blogger, um, you're a cultural analyst, uh, at, at its heart, you're really a pastor uh, who wants to see uh, God's people uh, continue to love Jesus uh, and also continue to take the life-giving message of Jesus out to uh, to the world. Oh, 100%. And most of my ministry life has been involved pastoring churches and planting churches. And I, I think if there's a disconnect between someone who's writing or thinking in this space and a pastoral heart, then you're going to find you're going to head off in arcane directions that don't actually help people and don't actually equip pastors for the, the day-to-day stuff of helping their people live for Jesus in a world that says you shouldn't, as the subtitle says. Yeah, and, and again, what I appreciated about, um, about your book as well was how you, uh, I guess you worked through both Haggai and Daniel, um, and particularly the thing that sort of stuck out with me uh, was just using the, the model of Daniel uh, for how we ought to operate in this world, you know, being faithful, uh, and and fearless, you know, having the courage to actually keep, uh, you know, stepping up. So so again, really really helpful how you 
you analysed, did all the sort of work for us, but then actually brought the Bible to bear on, on actually our, our response um, in this space. Now, the book was written, like, it seems an age ago, 2021. Lots has happened in the last uh, 18 months. What's changed, you think, since, since writing the book? A couple of things, I think. I, I think in uh, for, for Christians, they're seeing that uh, feel, things do feel a little more bracing. You've seen the Andrew Thorburn situation. So there's a high level mm. of interest in uh, the language around some of the issues around sexual ethics and abortion are churches that there are churches out there that hold really controversial views. And I go, well, that seems pretty, and that's ramped up. That language is ramped up. At the same time, however, I'd say I look around the wider culture and I, there's a fracturing of what people think the future was going to be like. I think once you've won the war, you start to rip each other apart. And you see that in some of the uh, various communities where. Uh, there's now a fracturing of what do we actually mean by where we're headed. Uh, at the same time, COVID has put an absolute dent in people's confidence. And so you will find there's a ramping up of anxiety. There's a ramping up of people unsure of what we're supposed to believe. There's a ramping up of conspiracy theory left and right. And people are looking for something solid to land on. And Christianity, interestingly, if it can hold its nerve and not fight the culture wars too hard either side, it can be a place where people can land and go, there's something about this place and this community that makes sense and that has something to it that seems to be bigger than me, older than me, and can go further than what I can go forward in the future by myself. Now, I'm, I'm interested in that not not fight too hard because uh, you describe yourself as a little bit bolshy, uh, chippy, I think is, is what you... Um, I thought what that's what you, you called reference. No. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but but it's but it's interesting. I, I think you know you you actually speak to yourself in the book a few times and kind of mm. say actually I need I need to kind of pull myself back in. Um, I need to not be looking for the win, uh, chasing the argument. You know, up for the fight, uh, so to speak. And so I don't think you say no. We've got to cave in and, and not argue. But but at the same time, you know, what does it look like to um, the title of Sam, Sam Chan says it so well, you know, don't be that guy. Yeah. Uh, what does it look like to, to still stand up for the Christian faith but not be that guy? Well, I think um, I'll give an example uh, where a friend of mine who works high up in a creative industry uh, had uh, a, a younger person who was working for him, a young woman with, married with a couple of kids. Over the course of a year or two, she was asking lots of questions about life and she rocked up to church uh, one week when there's a big church gathering and she became a Christian through his you know, fairly clear about what I believe, but also she was watching his life as a worker and as a boss and how he engaged with other people, how he uh, dealt with difficult situations. And there's something about that that drew her. And it wasn't that he was angry. It wasn't that he gave in to all the various cultural uh, shifts and shapes of the day, but he had a consistency about him. And it was a consistency around Jesus. And she became a Christian because she was looking for something that w would be solid to land on. Now, her entry point wasn't necessarily, I'm a sinner and I need to be saved, though she was and did <laughs> and has been, but she was looking for something that took a burden off her and that gave her a sense of approval outside of what other people said about her. And she said that mm. to me when I asked her, because you, know, you always want to interview a newbie and say, hey, how'd you become a Christian at the age of 42? That's just bizarre. It shouldn't be, but it is. And it's just out of the mm. blue. And I think Christians who live a joined up, authentic, clear lives together over a long period of time in a church that is clear about what it believes and can stand up to getting the odd punch in the face, culturally speaking, I think they'll stand themselves in good stead. 
if they do that good, deep, rich community together without getting alarmist. So, so I want to push in that deep, rich community in a second, but, yeah. but I, I, I guess I, what's your word to pastors? Because cause I, I think it's hard, like it's becoming harder and harder uh, to be able to stand up and be that person who says, no, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to live an obedient, uh, you know, Christ, grace-filled, generous uh, life. You know, as, as you say in the book, you want to live, you want you want to encourage people to live exemplary, grace-filled, generous lifestyles, not the mean-spirited, hostile, and dangerous sort of lifestyles that they, you know, that that you're reading about that we have. Mm. Uh, look, I, I, I'd say a couple of things. Um, what's the saying? You can't fatten a pig on the weight of the market. If you're looking in the next ten years and going, it's going to get more hostile for Christians. Christians may lose their jobs, or there's going to be. Uh, conversely, there'll be a real wooing of young people away from the gospel through the sexual gospel, I suppose. Uh, start your work now. <laughs> you can't fatten the pig in the way to market. You go to the scriptures and go, the Bible is ostensibly written for the losers. <laughs> uh, in the New Testament, it's written for the people who weren't the impressive, weren't the uh, movers and shakers of the culture. Now, I'm not saying we want to give up the Christian framework in our culture. It's a good thing. But if we're starting to prepare people, we're going to need to prepare them for what Monday to Friday might look like if they don't have the, the dream job, if things do get difficult for people at work. And we also got to think about how we shape people to evangelize in ways that are probably a little bit um, more uh, surreptitious in some respects. Uh, in a workplace where you can go to a workplace and you can get in trouble for trying to proselytize now. And it's not a case of pastors being able to say to people, just go to work and make sure you're evangelized. It's not quite like that anymore. And everyone is very cautious about that. And I think we've got to think of a way to be like my friend was with his work colleague, uh, is how over a long period of time do you show that there's something different about you that people would ask? Yeah, yeah, which, uh, as you say, it's just doing the week-in, week-out work of... Uh, of encouraging people to follow Jesus, but I, I do, like I uh, I get the sense that uh, the pushback from a number of sort of people in the pews is uh, to a lot of pastors is, is you just don't understand. You know your 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 job is actually not on the line. Um, you don't have to come into the office every day uh, and uh, and fight for this or not turn up because there's you know there's hmm. there's going to be implications for you and you know you're going to be forced to do something that you don't want want to do. Um, so. It, you, you helpfully, page 115, um, you encourage the church leader to prepare their people for the week that they'll be having, uh, not the week that uh, you'll be having. And I, again, I get, I get the sense that you're speaking to yourself as you do this, uh, just as much as you're also speaking to the pastor. Yes, and look, I, I've made it a point. Um, the last church I was working in, I've caught up for lunch with several of the people who work in fairly significant industries and chatted with them about what's going on and my question to them is how can I support you uh, what do you need to know and how do I support you in that role because I don't want us to just fall into the evangelical trap that uh, work vocation is simply there as a necessary evil to create money to keep the church going I think people resent that because they say this mm. job is difficult I need to know how to behave Christianly in this setting uh, in grey areas or rainbow coloured areas <laughs> so to speak uh, because it's hard. And I, I, the first thing you could do is start to talk about work at church from the front, to pray for people who are going to work, to preach about work, as in not just one sermon a year on work, but you can't go to the book of Daniel without thinking about how does this, <laughs> that's about work. You can't go to the book of 1 Peter without thinking what does it mean to be marginalized in the guilds of you know the union or whatever the workplace is because a lot of 1 Peter is not about 
upfront persecution. It's about losing opportunities. What does it mean to go to university and have to sign off on things uh, that you don't like? Or maybe you might not be able to become that psychiatrist because you can't sign off on a certain view of gender or whatever. And I think preparing our people that somehow we're not always going to get it all we want in this age, but there's a hope beyond it is a good starting point. But also just talk to people about where, where work is at and how it's difficult to be a Christian in that setting and dial down, I think there's a little bit of resentment in the pews towards if work doesn't, Ray mention in this church, does this person even know what my life's like? And you talk about having the faithfulness check with someone, you know, uh, regularly lifting the bonnet, seeing how things are going in their life, asking them how their private life is going, asking them how their prayer life is going, um, hmm. he, you know, helping them... Uh, you know, think through what they're watching, what the what their sort of diet of uh, of things in, helping them know what books to read. Um, you know, the the thing that stuck out to me, I've underlined it. You know, how do you respond to criticism? You know, actually helping people, um, you know, handle that handle that re- response because you know, again, you know, our gut our gut response is, well, hang on, we've we've got the words of eternal life. We actually have the we're actually standing on the right side of of history here. Let, let me tell you where you're wrong. But <laughs> but actually, uh, that's often not the best way to go. Well, look, I think the interesting thing is that the uh, first six chapters of Daniel are, uh, apart from, you know, there's some dream stuff going on, they're earthbound in one sense. Mm. But the next chapters, they actually give you the big picture of what's going on in the invisible realm. And Daniel wouldn't be able to do one to six if he didn't have a big picture view, especially of chapter seven and onwards, about what history really looks like and where history is really headed. So I think Mm. if you do think that you're on the right side of history, you don't need to arc up. Now, I'm saying that as someone who is a bit quick-tongued, <laughs> and so I can be, <laughs> hey, you laugh with recognition. Um, and it, it's a case of I have to dial that down because I know that I can win an argument very quickly, but tone is so important and stance is so important in this current context that we're playing an away game, not a home game. In that sense, as as so fle- flesh that flesh that out a little bit more for oh people yeah, and understand can't, uh, can't, football. Yeah, I can't yeah. remember. Yeah, home or away game in Australian rules, Australian <laughs> soccer uh, this month in particular that this has been recorded hasn't been a great experience. Home or away, um, I think what we're saying is if if you think it's a home game, then everything should be going our way. We shouldn't. The government should be clearly honest with us and allow us to run our schools our own way. But it's an away game and we don't get to call those shots. Now, that doesn't mean to say you can't be involved in government or lobbying to ensure that Christian voices have freedom because we shouldn't lose our freedoms. And religious freedom is a canary in the mine shaft. If, if it dies in a culture, something, something's gone wrong. But uh, we have to go in graciously and also aware that we might lose. There's an actual possibility that we could lose a lot of things that we like in the coming decades but here's the other thing i'd say scott the 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 thing that's going to take people away from christianity the most is not the bad life it's the good life and in the cities of australia if you've got a congregation and they're turning up once every three weeks because on the other two sundays there's all this other good stuff on you're more more likely to lose them to the good life turning up to church week in week out is 80 percent of the game because it's your liturgical framework, it's your cultural liturgy, as James Smith would say, that shapes you into a way of thinking and loving, and it shapes your desires. There's just no way around that. Yeah, you, you like you, you push it out really simply. Hey, be part of a small group, 
uh, be part of a, a community where you can do more than just the regular self-examination. You can actually be examined by a community. Yeah, and look, I think the key to us, for us, is we have the Holy Spirit and we have the gospel of forgiveness and grace, right? So uh, in my book, I wrote about a friend who was a running friend who looked at the Christian community versus the running community, and her conclusion was that forgiveness was probably the thing that was lacking in the running community. Now, I might mention it in the second book, but lo and behold, uh, that runner and a few other runners had a major fallout with their coach, and it's blown the thing out of the water. And I've spoken to that to her about where's forgiveness and all of that. Well, here's what forgiveness looks like: turning up to race day and standing on the opposite side of the line from the other running team because they can't face it. They haven't got a framework to forgive and reconcile. Mm. And I'm hoping that's something that triggers in her: hey, there's something different about the Christian community that the running community doesn't have. But time shows it up. If you can be with the same people over 30 years in a church. You're, you're batting high on the forgiveness scale because you've had to forgive people a lot over 30 years, surely. Yet, yet in your book, you also talk about Rosaria Butterfield and her experience coming out of the um, uh, lesbian community, community mm. into, the Christian, into the Christian community. And she says, actually, uh, you know, they, they were tight. You know, her former community was tighter and stronger than her, her current you know, Christian community. Because they were the creative minority community on the edge of the culture. And I think of... As the lesbian LGBT community has moved to the centre of the culture, here's what's happened. It's fractured. The T has come apart from the LGB at the moment. And if you go on Twitter, uh, it's a war. And you've got people who would have been allies 10 years ago at each other's throats. And so the church could, it could do the church no harm to move to the edge of the community and be a place that's a creative minority and uh, be a place where we're all in this together. And we see each other not as opposed to the world, but we are separate from the world in a way that we didn't realise before when we had a higher seat up at the table of the social discourse. And now that we don't, what does it mean to be almost a band of brothers and sisters together? And I do say that, a band of brothers and sisters, because I think we can show the world what godly relationships across the sexes can actually look like in a way that the culture is really struggling with at the moment. Now, you, you talk about uh, surplus, surplus building. Uh, you, you talk about being active as a church community to create that surplus, uh, given that we've, we're operating in a, in a big deficit. Uh, yeah, talk, talk us through just a little bit of that. What does that look like for the local church uh, pastor who's yeah, already busy leading a congregation, trying to get people to get along to small groups regularly, dealing with a whole bunch of pastoral issues, and, and you're, saying, you're saying, you know, do more? Yeah, well, there's the, that's the scary thing, isn't it? Because I hear I heard that all the time. Look, this is going to be more. And you go, actually, no, what if you dial down some of the things that you have to do? Or what if you ran life a little bit smoother? It, is there a case of saying a plus one? And that's something that we're uh, operating in the, in the Providence Network of Churches that I'm going to one of the church plants, which is interesting going to a church plant again as a non-pastor and sitting in it and watching. And I'm really enjoying it. Uh, not least of all because I get up later on a Sunday. <laughs> no, uh, and thinking, how are they doing the small incremental things in a community that are lacking in a, in a community? They're, they're trying to engage with the community. They hang out locally. Um, they make a point, even the pastoral team, making a point of let's go and meet the, the civic leaders of our community, the town council people who may not care for Christianity at all and are running several different kinds of flags up the flagpole of each town council. 
But what does it mean to say, okay, let's let's be those people who are repellently attractive, that or we don't like the message they give, but gee, they're good to be in the community. They've done some stuff around here that helps us as a community. And I don't think that's that hard, and I don't think the pastoral staff have to control it all. I'll just say that. It, the, one of the liberating things is if there are people that you trust who are godly, and they say, we'd like to do this in our community, you don't have to control it. <laughs> you can keep an oversight on it just briefly, but you can say that aligns with our philosophy of ministry. It is a good to our culture. It can be a first stop apologetic for what Christianity is about. Off you go and do it. I think outsourcing mm. is undervalued. <laughs> outsourcing things yeah. out to other people in the congregation. Well, this is going to be a long episode. Steve and I had lots to talk about. Tune in for part two. <laughs>